0: and is making a, quote-unquote, free choice to receive Christ, that's still alive. It hasn't put, been put to death yet. There hasn't been repentance yet. There hasn't been the transformation of the heart yet. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazzella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are a God of truth. And that even as we approach this subject today, which is primarily doctrinal, you know, it still has in it, of course, the, the life of God. That uh, you are a God of truth, you are a God of life, you're eternal. And these you are the source of these things that we understand in our mind, even though experience is so much lacking and the fact that you're eternal and and truth is not exactly common on planet earth right now. we give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you are a God who is good. And that one day the universe will return to your t- total control. And what I mean by that is that you're totally sovereign over everything that takes place. But there's evil in the world and that will be done away with one day. When it's fulfilled, it's purposes in your plan, and your good and holy plan. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, and, and to, to understand the truths that, we, that come forth from your word, and that it might all of these might give you honor and glory, and they might touch us in our hearts so that we would see their purpose, and that in them you are good and holy. We ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 60, the Not I by Christ series. Not all of those are, not all 60 episodes belong to that particular series, but this is uh, Sorted Scriptures, and uh, the title of this message is Chosen Before the Foundation familiar verse from Ephesians that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Something that gets under the skin of some people, even though it's scriptural. And on the other hand, it's it's a beautiful concept that you, O oh God, are sovereign and in control of all things, and that you knew beforehand everything that you would accomplish, everything that would be brought to pass, so in control of all of it that before the foundations were laid, before there was anything, you knew specifically who you were going to choose, who would be brought into be the heirs of salvation, and that's how in control you are. And you made it a statement by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, one concept that I want us to consider as we look into this idea of God's sovereignty is that one thing that is always Satan's main focus is to deceive. And when he does, he creates controversy. Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is the god of this world. But God uh, always has people who are willing to contend with his lies. That is the god of this world. So God's people contend with those lies and that controversy then um, is created. Such was the case in the controversy between Augustine, or Augustine, whichever you prefer, and Pelagius. Pelagius, a British-born monk who was teaching in Rome from about A.D. 380 to 410. Pelagius believed that mankind can avoid sinning and that humans can freely choose to obey God's commandments. Anyone who understands Christian orthodoxy knows it, that how far from the truth that is. Furthermore, he did not believe in original sin. He obviously, obviously did not understand the inspired teachings of the Apostle Paul from the book to the Romans concerning justification through grace alone in Romans 4, and the human race's identification with Adam and propagation of sin in Romans 5. During the Reformation, Satan undoubtedly seeing the richness of man's understanding of the gospel, decided to soften the deception of free will and thereby make it more acceptable in ranks of church leaders. Erasmus, 1467 to 1536, became a humanist by reading and by traveling a lot to Oxford, Paris, Bologna, among other places. Luther, 1483 to 1546, was a German monk and professor in Germany. Their relationship would become rich but stormy. In 1523, shortly before he died, Pope Adrian VI and a friend of Erasmus asked him to confirm that uh, his opinion on salvation through good deeds agreed with that of the Catholic Church. Erasmus wrote on free will, although not under that Pope, but Erasmus wrote on free will in 1524. Luther immediately answered in a strongly polemical text entitled "On the Bondage of the Will." If you haven't read it, you need to. Erasmus's opinion on salvation through good deeds was rather subtle. Uh, he considered that if good deeds depend opened, The way to personal salvation. It all relied on the free will, freedom of choice of the one who achieved them. Get that? He considered that if good deeds opened the way to personal salvation, it all relied on quote-unquote free will. The basis of Erasmus' thinking, Erasmus would often ask, quote, if we can do nothing, what is the purpose of all the laws? precepts, threats, and promises in the Bible. All these precepts are useless if nothing <coughs> is attributed to the human will. If it is not in the power of every man, or woman, I would suppose, to keep what is commanded, all the exhortations of Scripture are of no necessity useless, end quote. That was uh, Erasmus' thinking. Now, concerning salvation, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's John 3.3. 3. Then in 3.5, Jesus again said, Jesus answered, t- "Quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, you can't see it, and you can't enter it, according to Jesus, if you're not born again, and that's the kingdom of God. Let me remind my hearers that to be born is out of the power of every person. Or, to make a choice, which is Jesus' point. God created the first man. He is in the procreation of every person since. And he is in the recreation of every lost sinner because it equally is beyond or out of people's control. So when he says you must be born again, it's not something you can do, like good deeds, or make a choice. You have to be born again first. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Now, in, so I want to give you some quotes as a reaction by Luther to this idea that the law is without purpose unless a person could do it. Quote, and this is all from the bondage of the will. When you are finished with all your commands and exhortations, I'll write Romans 3.20 over the top of it all. Qu- end quote, or not end quote, but then in, in brackets. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. End quote. Next quote from page 157 of the book. If you are willing is a verb in the subjunctive mood. If you are willing, from scripture, is in the subjunctive mood, which asserts nothing. A conditional statement asserts nothing indicative. Quote, if you are willing, end quote, if you hear, quote unquote, if you do, quote unquote, Declare not man's ability, but his duty. His, not his ability, he says, but his duty. Another quote from 160. The commandments are not given, quote, the commandments are not given inappropriately or pointlessly, but in order that through them the proud, blind man may learn the plague of his impotence, should he try to do as he is commanded. And this is, you know, just basically Romans uh, chapter 6, 7, and showing the, the flesh and the law, which demand that man do something good, his conscience and, his, and, the, and the written law. But they're there there is a schoolmaster to show him you can't do it. That's, the whole, that's his whole point, is just the point that Paul makes from Romans. Another quote from page 159 by Luther, quote, even... Grammarians and schoolboys on street corners know that nothing more is signified by verbs in the imperative mood than what ought to be done, and that what is done or can be done should be expressed by words in the indicative. How is it that you theologians are twice as stupid as schoolboys in that as soon as you get hold of a single imperative verb, you infer an indicative meaning? As though the moment a thing is commanded, it is done or can be done, end quote. You know, I want to mention at this point that, uh, you know, what came out of the Reformation was huge. And it's this. One of the gigantic lessons learned at the time of the Reformation was the use of language in the study of the Bible. The theologians at that time learned that the use of allegories are not present in the scriptures. Mysterious and spiritualizing of the Bible was never to be done. God writes as He has made writing to be literal, logical, and reasonable. All the previous mean all that all that means is that of understanding God's holy word, we're seen for that. They were satanic and deceptive. Let me state that again. All the men who came before, largely from the, almost the time of, the, of the, the church fathers, the people who proceeded after the uh, apostles, right up until the Reformation, just were very quick to spiritualize everything. Like Words didn't mean what they mean. They had to mean something else. And that's what got the church into so much trouble. When in reality, words are to be used, they're to be understood as they are always used. So when he's talking about indicative and imperative, he's talking about what comes out of the words. So when the statement of, this is what you should do, that doesn't mean you can. I mean, that's the bottom line of those terms. The passage, here's another quote from Luther. The passages of scripture you cite, speaking Luther, speaking to Arminius, are imperative, and they approve and establish nothing about the ability of man. It's it's imperative. It's a command. But only lay down what is what not to be done. You know, thou shalt not. Okay, that's what it lays down. It has nothing to do with man's ability. Does it, and here let me continue. He continues. Does it follow from turn ye, that therefore you can turn? Does it follow from, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, Deuteronomy six 5, that therefore you can love all, with all your heart? What do arguments of this kind prove? But the free will does not need the grace of God, but can do all things by its own power. But it does not follow from this, that man is converted by his own power, nor do the words say so. They simply say, if you will turn telling man what he should do, when he knows it, and sees that he cannot do it, he will ask whence he may find the ability to do it. See what he's saying? He's saying when you can't do it, then you have to go looking for, gee, how can I get this done? And isn't that the course of every christian who when he gets a person gets saved they immediately begin to struggle and that's why scripture is so explicit when you get down to the letters and the epistles and the doctrines as to how to do that how to walk in the spirit how to walk by faith how to walk by the power of god because that's what gets it done let alone the person who's lost and he 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 doesn't he, he doesn't know his elbow from his from his eyeballs, you know, what the difference is on, on, on anything. And we'll look at that a little bit more in detail in a minute. God is sovereign in salvation, just as he is sovereign over everything else. God is always the one who gets to choose first. That's my point for this next section. And I'm going to look at a, a, a whole group of verses that make it very clear God's position in the, in the universe he created. Okay, Genesis 18.10. Quote, he said, and this is uh, speaking about the time of Abraham's call. Quote, I will certainly return to you at this next time, next year, and behold, your wife Sarah will have a son. And quote. Now this is an angel. The angel of the Lord this is the Lord speaking to Abraham. And it's at that point where Sarah didn't have belief being past the time of giving birth, that she could give birth, and that she was walking in unbelief. And the Lord pr- reproved her for her unbelief. And then these verses from Genesis eighteen seventeen through 19, which say, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him, End quote. So the Lord here very clearly is making a choice. He has made it already. Some will say Abraham was chosen because the Lord saw what Abraham would do in the future and therefore he chose him. This is crazy talk. However, there is nothing in the text that would suggest in any way that that actually takes place. It's never, never about the text when you're excusing or changing or rationalizing what you don't want to believe. Also, the main point of the passage is the Lord's choice, which makes it mute if there is something causing the Lord's choice. The whole point is that Christ, almighty God, is the source of all things. What makes the Lord, Lord, is that his is the first choice. Like, let there be light. You know, nothing caused him to make light. There was no other consequence or interference or something that made him do that. Or No, no, he, it's his choice. This is the meaning of God. In the same way, all creation came from him. And he is the first cause. Always that which comes first is God. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 10. Quote, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. He has chosen. Get that? The Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the people, since you were the fewest of all peoples. There's no reason why he did. That's not the reason, isn't it? Quote, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their face to illuminate them. He will not hesitate toward him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Moses begins this passage from Deuteronomy 7 with, you are a holy people to the Lord. Holy is separated for separated for, to, for a holy purpose. Uh, and so that holiness is separated to God for a holy purpose. That's what makes a person holy. They're doing God's will. And what is it that makes the people holy? But God's cho- choice. Your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession. That's You get the holiness. We're doing his will. It's his choice. In chapter 24. We read these words, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham beyond the Euphrates River and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. He's going through and he's rehearsing what was taking place. Then in verses 13 through 15 says this, and I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them. You are eating and vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant now therefore, fear the Lord, and this is Joshua speaking, I'm sorry, this isn't from Deuteronomy, this is from the book of Joshua, later on in this, uh, this, with this idea of coming out of the land of Egypt, and all that God did for them, and he made them his own possession. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and do away with the gods which your fathers served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And here comes this big question. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, and there comes that great quote from Joshua, we will serve the Lord. Well, uh, the point here is, A choice is now placed before the children of Israel. And then in verses 16 through 18, we read this. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we would abandon the Lord to serve other gods. Or the Lord our God is he who brought us up out of our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery and did these great signs in our sight and watched over us through all the ways in which we went among all the people through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from us, before us, all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now get this, in verse 19 and 20, Joshua then again replies to the people's decision to choose the Lord. And this is what Joshua says. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your wrongdoings or your sins if you abandon the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and destroy you after he has done good to you. What's going on here? I mean, he's given them this choice to serve. They're saying, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. And then he says, no, you're not going to be able to do it. Think about this now. This is Old Testament, right? This is uh, far less understanding, we're told, about what's going on in the minds of those who are redeemed, those who are the chosen, those who are like Moses and Joshua and Caleb and others, people who really were in the kingdom, people who made it through the first 40 years and then entered into the land along with the children who then conquered the land. In verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, no but we will serve the Lord. I don't know how many people in this generation came to Christ. I don't know what their obedience and, you know, there's nothing like that in the scripture that really tells us. We only know this, that they went in and they conquered, and the first generation died in their unbelief and in their, and so the second, the children who saw what was, and many of them, I don't know, some of them may have come as Joshua did in Moses, Caleb, Joshua twenty four twenty two says. So Joshua said to the people, "You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him." And they said, "We are witnesses. Let me tell you what's going on here. Whether it's Israel or it's the church, people within inside that title, that umbrella, that name, which is Israel or the church, who have not been born again, have not entered into a covenant relationship with Almighty God, who have not had a tran- change of heart, transformation of their heart and their mind. And I know people are going to go whacked out of the Holy Spirit wasn't given. I'm not talking about any of that right now. We can talk about that, but there's such a thing as conversion, as transformation, entering into the salvation that made Moses, a friend of God, that made Joshua a mighty warrior for God, that made David a man of faith and who could, on his throne, would sit Jesus Christ, and on and on. Daniel, just Joseph, just go through them all. These men were either transformed, entered into a covenant relationship with a covenant-making God because he chose them, or else they come under this heading where Joshua says, your witness is against yourselves. That you have chosen for yourselves to serve the Lord, to serve him. And the witness is, yeah, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing. Without realizing the wretchedness of the human soul, coming to repentance, being born again, being made right with God, and then being able to carry it out as we pursue God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. As we are empowered by Him through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and follow Him by being empowered by Almighty God. Not ourselves. That's what's going on here because that's what goes on in real life. No matter what theologians want to talk about, the fact is either Moses interceded for God and did things like Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and rather himself to be blotted out rather than his children. I mean, just all of those kinds of things which just don't belong in the souls of sinful men. Now here, let me go on to the next step. So we're talking about choice, talking about the sovereignty of God. We talked about a few things here. I think it's very disingenuous to make this significant idea of choice. And to put both just amoral choice and moral choices in the same category. So, and that's what we think of, choice. Everybody's got choice. And we live out our whole lives. And Let's see, which shoe am I going to tie in my f- today first? My right foot or my left foot? And you have the freedom to do that, and you do it. And you look at that and you say, yeah, that's the choice. It's, I'm, I do that every single day. Stop. Back up for a minute. How hard is it to choose whether or not to, choose to, to sh- tie your right shoe first. It's no big deal, right? It's, no, it's nothing. Well, how about this? Submit to the king's edict or die. How, is it, how is it easy is it to make that choice? How about this? You're a young man is just faced with this temptation before him. No one's looking, and there's this beautiful woman. I don't have to get too elaborate on this. You know, do I say, and giving herself to him, and yes or no? Easy, hard. Okay, which way we go? How about this? If you tell the truth, you go to jail. Uh, Easy, hard. How about this one? And this will be the last one. Uh, Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. So that every decision from now on will depend upon his revealed will. you got to seek his will and you only do what his will demands. Easy or hard? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Easy or hard? I'm thinking impossible by an unsaved man. Let me tell you about the sticking point. (laughs) According to God... Every thought, deed, attitude, and motive are judged good or evil as they are related to God. That's right. Every thought, deed, attitude, and motive are judged good or evil as the person is related or not to Almighty God. We just read it, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Bingo. Right in your face. We're talking about almighty God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There's the imperative. The imperative, you shall love the Lord your God. And we're talking about the one true God now. We're not talking about the God which is your car, or your career, or what you really lust after. Not, not that. those gods none of those, the God who demands you do the right thing when it's self-sacrificing. With our faces placed upon the one true God in verse 4, God goes on to tell us that love for God is the be all in our heart, our soul, and our might. The command is not just when we are singing in church but throughout the entirety of our lives in every thought we have, every deed we do, every attitude we project, and every motive behind it all. It is, you know, it's one thing to tie our shoelaces; It's quite another to hold God as supreme in everything that proceeds from our hearts. Now look, having considered the difference between an amoral choice and a moral choice, let us ponder for a moment what God says about our behavior, and in particular, in its relation to him, God. Okay? Let's think about this. Romans three, ten through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18 There is no fear of God before their eyes. And which means they don't recognize God as God. Anyone who recognizes God as the consuming fire that he is, who understands that he created us and he gave us a conscience, and the conscience is always nagging at us until you put it to death. You know, it's always nagging at, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And you know where that's coming from? The creator. So we're not even acknowledging that God exists. (sighs) Romans 1, through and 30 says this, quote, People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. Now look, here's the the issue. All of these things that he's quoted in, in Romans, they're all a result of being disconnected from the God from which these things come. That is, that God wants us not to envy, not to murder, not to be deceitful, or full of strife from us. All of these things are evil when God is good. And so when you're disconnected from God, these things come. 2 Timothy 3.4 three, says, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, as we uh, look at the quote-unquote freedom of the will as a moral choice for sinners, uh, <laughs> we We should understand from the condition of man, if we really see him for the sinner that we all are from birth, if we see that, the idea of freedom of the will is just ludicrous. Let's consider Paul's argument from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's talking to church people. He's talking about redeemed people. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid such a thing. How will, shall we who died to sin? How shall we who died to sin? What happens at conversion? At conversion, we died to sin. How shall we still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? placed into the death of Christ so that that no longer exists. Now the person who's lost and is making a quote-unquote free choice to receive Christ, that's still alive. It hasn't been put to death yet. There hasn't been repentance yet. There hasn't been the transformation of the heart yet. He goes on, verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, this is post-redemption, post-transformation. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You see, up to verse through verse 6, he's putting man in his unconverted, unsaved condition, where he's not born again yet, in a condition of a slave to sin. Now, a slave, as expressed through the word used, is a person who is unequivocally bought by another person, has no rights of his own, has no uh, no independence, he's not able to make his own choices, he's, uh, he's a slave. Can't go here or there, he can't make a life of his own, can't own his own house, he's a slave. It's a horrible condition, it's a dreadful situation, which men have created for thousands of years, <clears throat> and in this situation, it's a picture of sin. You know, just like all the other evils in the world, adulteries and pride, and just go through it, it's all a picture of the slavery of all men, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, to this thing the Bible calls sin, which is animosity and hatred toward God. But then he goes on in verse 20 and says, when you were, or verse 7, I'm sorry, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now this is a whole new condition that a man enters into at salvation. He's dead in Christ, and he's literally freed from sin. If he exercises faith that's now given to him, if he now enters into the reality of his new heart, which you can't really help to do, People can struggle through things because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but it's a new person. That's the whole point in 5 and 6 and 7 of Romans. Quote, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Those who would propound the idea of freedom of the will for the lost, please consider Paul's argument from Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which is actually no different than here in Romans. It's all the same. Quote, You were dead in your offenses and sins, which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that's anyone not saved, hasn't come to transformation of life. That's the course of the world. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Under the anger of God, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What could be more glorious, more more great than that? There's the what what we, we were and what we become. What we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead men don't do things. They don't make a whole lot of choices. They, you know, as a dead person spiritually, we live biologically. Our soul is alive, but our spirit is dead. We're haters of God. We're willing to do these things. Now, I understand that there's all different levels of morality in the world, depending on the culture and depending on the individual people and how they turn out. I'm not going into all of those. Who who can? You know, man tries to understand all of that. it's within the mind and heart of God. But the key of the matter is this. If man is dead in sins, which he is, and if God is sovereign, which he is, then a person's rebirth must precede the choice to receive Christ. If a man is dead in sins, which he is, and if God is sovereign, which he is, then a person's rebirth must precede his choice to receive Christ. The followers of Arminius as Pelagius believers in the free and moral will of man while still dead and a slave in his trespasses and sins. Let me say that again. The followers of Arminius and the followers of Pelagius believed in a free and moral will while man was still dead in his sins. That's the whole point they make. The followers of the, uh, of the Orthodox and Biblical scholar, uh, both Luther and Augustine, believed in the free and moral will of man only after rebirth and regeneration after salvation. Now, I don't understand why any Orthodox biblically thinking person would want it any other way. I mean, maybe just not stopping to think about this. I mean, what's wrong with God being the author of salvation? Oh, I know. See, people are trying to protect God from, oh, that he would make a choice. Look, the whole human race, according to Romans 5, is guilty under Adam. Understand this, really. This is really important. That God is completely justified if he sent every last man, woman, and child to hell. He didn't have have to die for anyone to be justified. God isn't justified by saving people. God is justified by punishing people. God is revealed to be incredibly merciful and holy and loving and kind in sending forth his son to save son. Some. Now look, I think I'm right in saying this, that a multitude of people, if we include all babies that have ever died that haven't carried their full term, all babies who are lost because of death, right up to the point where they would understand Um, right from wrong. All of those babies are under the blood of Christ. I don't have the time to go into it now. But they're in in an innocent state. They never chose to do anything. And all the judgment at the judgment seat, the white throne judgment, people will be judged according to their deeds, knowing right from wrong, knowing being in the light to one degree or another and according to that light, being judged according to that light. How could a baby face such judgment no great theologians in the past ever believed that, Spurgeon or any of them. They, they all understood that a person w- was judged that way, having never lived their life or understood good from evil, wouldn't even understand why they were under punishment. So there's a great many people have been brought into the kingdom, even though the way is narrow and the, the way is, that leads to eternal life and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Those are for the living, okay? I'm going to quote two more verses, and that brings us to an end. And this is the promise of God from Ezekiel 11 and 36. And Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20 says this, And I will give them one heart, and put a new spirit within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, so that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and do them, Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. God's saying unequivocally in Ezekiel 11 that he is giving people a new heart. My contention is that no person could ever be saved. From Adam and Eve, if they were saved, which they probably were, Noah, all the way through to today, can only be saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, believing in a Christ you can't see and know like we can today, but know that God was, by promise, going to provide, make provision for our sins, is the same idea. Different amount of light, same idea. It's still repentance. I'm a sinner. I'm going to go to hell if I don't repent of the sin and then believe in the promise of God. And the promise here in Ezekiel is a promise of a new heart. In 36, it says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. That's a big one. That's kind of big. Uh, Pastors, teachers, evangelists love to put the idea of God's love for man first. uh, Here, God is doing what he should do, and we should do also, is, as always, put God first. It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you all in their sight. For I will take from you, from the nations, and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And it's the blood of Christ that does that cleansing. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. Last verse 28. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Now this is a fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of Christ that Revelations talks about that will last 1,000 years. It will be a literal kingdom, and the Jew is right at the forefront of this, at the promise, being uh, judges and evangelists and whatever position of authority that God gives to all his people at that time. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and with love because there will be evangelism, and there will be people coming to Christ like we've never seen in the history of the world. And it's a a time of revival. It's a time of blessing. Will people refuse? Will people still turn away? Will people be lost, still be lost? Absolutely. But God will be seen for the heart that he has, a heart to save people, a heart to move in people's lives even though he is the sovereign God that is not the force to make any choice at all. There is nothing pressing in on God at all. He stands alone, independent, and everything he does is good. He punishes evil. He exalts righteousness. He is the cause of redemption. He he poured out the blood of his own son. He prepped. Jesus paid the price for the people for whom he would die. And upon those people, God poured out his blessings of salvation for all those who call on the name of the Lord. Could those, anyone, call on the name of the Lord? And I feel feel for you, if you feel like, you know, that's an injustice of God, that God would do such a thing. If you're thinking along those lines that, that God chooses some to be saved and he allows the, less, the rest to be lost like all would be. If you think that that's a crime, you don't understand the nature of sin. You haven't yet fully internalized, you have not fully internalized the biblical concept of sin, of hating the creator, of, of hating the first cause of all things and hating the one who gave you life, who gave all people life. And as he gave people that life, they turned it all into evil. And we see that in passage after passage in the Bible, both exemplified in history, the history recorded in the Bible, and, and also in epistles and letters, understanding just the nature of people's hearts and their minds set against God to do every evil. They go to war, they torture one another, they do adulteries, and just things I can't, I don't even want to name. And to look at people in that light and say that God would be wrong in sending such a person to hell or not even giving them a chance for the blood, you're not really understanding the nature of sin. And you're not fully understanding the nature of salvation, how glorious it is that he would give it to anyone. And he gives it to many, many, as the sand on the seashore. Reconsider these things. Put God's sovereignty in its rightful place, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And then place man in that, in that awkward position that he is, that apart from the grace of God, he would never come to Christ. Just think about that in closing. People will go to a hell for eternity because they will never repent of sin. Wrap your head around that one. Why would a person stay a billion years in an eternal fire that they cannot escape or they, 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 yeah, they can't escape and not repent? Why? Because they can't. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the complicity uh, and at the same time, the simplicity of your holy word. For us who are saved, it's been to made simple like to babies. We come as little children. We come with nothing to give. We have nothing to offer. No choices to make. No good deeds to do. We come as wretched sinners, deserving hell. And, and as the speaker right now, I know that if it were not for the grace of God, I would go to hell. And I would deserve every minute of it. But you are a holy and a good God. And more than that, you are merciful and kind. <clears throat> we thank you for your grace that you saved anyone, let alone so many. I pray, O oh Lord, for any hearers of this, of these thoughts, of this message, that you open their hearts and their minds to see the glory of God. And if anyone has not received Jesus Christ as Lord, that he would do it now. I ask it in his precious and holy name. Amen.